Our Constitution is a document in which we, the people, tell the government what it is allowed to do. We, the people, are free. Hey, once again, we welcome you to Constitution Classroom with your host, Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, we've been slowly making our way through the Bill of Rights over these last few weeks, and at long last, it appears we have finally arrived at the 17th Amendment. Well, that is correct, and yes, it has been slow, but we've been wanting to get some detail here. If we can really get what the Constitution is about here, understand its basic principles, why the founders did things the way they did, or those who amended it, amended the way they did, that helps us to know how to apply the Constitution today. And it also means that when we face a constitutional crisis, we don't have to go back for a crash course because we've been studying it all along and we know what it says. So as we look to the 17th Amendment, the 17th Amendment is adopted in 1913. It provides for popular election of United States senators. And that should be clear enough, we think. But I think we need to go back and get the reasons why this was done and why, as we look at it today, it may not have been that good of an idea. Maybe the founding fathers, when they didn't do it this way, had some reasons that we don't understand now and that we would benefit from. So let's go back to the basic idea that when we look to a constitution, we are looking to the founding fathers' five-fold formula for freedom. And you recall that formula. First part of the formula was limited delegated powers. Government has only the powers that we, the people, have delegated to it through the Constitution. The second was separation of powers, which is the one we're going to be looking at today. That is, the powers that we delegate to government, we separate. And the third would be checks and balances, that the various branches check and balance one another. The fourth was in individual rights, rights that are reserved to the people that the government cannot take away, even if the majority want to take it away, because those rights are given by a higher authority than government. They are given by God. And finally, responsibility through religion. The framers did not want a state church, but they did understand that religion, and when they used that term, they used it pretty much interchangeably with Christianity, but religion not only saves souls for eternity, but it also builds character. It also provides the kind of civic character, responsible self-discipline that makes Republican government possible. And so let's look at that second principle once again of separation of powers, tying it in with the third principle there of checks and balances. The framers were concerned about giving too much power to the central government. They understood that those who run the government have the same sinful nature as all the rest of us. They are power hungry. They are corruptible. They are ambitious. And therefore, they are not to be trusted with absolute power. As Lord Acton would say a century later, power tends to corrupt. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. And then the next line of his statement was that, and great men 
are almost always bad men. And therefore, of course, their power needs to be carefully checked. And so in checking that power, the first thing the founders did was to make sure that no one branch, no one level, no one agency of government gets too much power. And also, of course, no one individual gets too much power. And so they did this first by separating the powers of government vertically, legislate, I'm sorry, vertically, the federal government, the state governments, and the local governments, and then by separating the powers of government horizontally according to their functions, the legislative, the executive, and the judicial. And the Constitution provides for these. The Constitution in Article One provides for a legislature, and if you're wondering where in the Constitution does it say that Congress can or can't do something, well, the place you'll most often look will be in Article One. Article One deals primarily with the legislature. If you're wondering about the president and his powers and the limitations on his powers, his duties and the like, then you look to Article Two. And if you're looking for the judicial power, you're looking for Article Three, usually. That's where most of those powers are concentrated. And the framers intended this for a reason. They didn't want any one branch to get too much power, but they were especially concerned about executive power and judicial power. In fact, Alexander Hamilton in the Federalist Papers says that the judiciary branch is the least dangerous branch of government because the judiciary branch only has the power of judgment. That is, it can only interpret what the other two branches of government have done. The legislature, Hamilton suggests, is the most powerful because the legislature exercises will. That is, the legislature determines the policy of the nation. The executive exercises force that is, the legislature, or rather the executive, carries out the will of the nation as expressed by the legislature. And as we said, the judiciary only exercises judgment. And so its powers are carefully delineated, and it is the least dangerous branch of government, as the framers thought. Many of us feel that the judiciary has grown today to become the most dangerous branch of government. And as we see an election today that is hinging on one issue, well, many issues, but one issue that seems to be one of the most primary, and that is whether or not we should confirm a particular Supreme Court justice, well, we can see how important the judiciary has become. But as the framers saw it, if there was one branch of government to be more powerful than others, it would be the legislative branch. And Blackstone and Cook seemed to see the same thing in England, where the parliament was more powerful and growing more powerful than the king. Montesquieu says much the same thing as far as his spirit of the laws. And so the legislative then being the most powerful branch, we determined that the legislative power should be divided into two houses. That's why we have a two-house legislature, a Senate 
and a House of Representatives. And at the state level, we have this in every state, with the exception of Nebraska, which has a unicameral or one-house legislature being a fairly small state that seems to work okay in Nebraska, but most states choose to do it the way we do it at the federal level. Well, why then do they decide to divide the powers of the legislature into two houses? Well, we can go back to some precedents. One of these precedents would be the Bible. And as we look to the Bible, for example, we find that Israel has a supreme judge, and then after the time of Samuel, where we develop a king, they have a monarch as well. But Israel has a legislative branch, and the legislative branch is the Sanhedrin. That's what it's called in Jesus' time, the Sanhedrin, council mostly of priests. And this appears to have its origin back in the days of Moses, when Moses called out a council of 70 elders. Some think that it may have existed in Israel even before Moses appointed those 70 elders. And their role was to consider what the laws ought to be, but also to act as an advisory body to the chief judge or to the king once Israel develops the king. Anyway, so we see that two-house precedent in Israel. First of all, you've got the upper house there that we call the Sanhedrin or Council of Elders. But then, and this is less clear in Scripture, but there appears to be a lower house as well, which is called usually the Congregation of Israel, or all Israel sometimes. And this is composed of tribal chiefs and judges and so on from each of the 12 tribes. And they seem to compose a lower house. As we get to Rome, we find Rome does much the same. In Rome, power in Rome rested in the legislative branch, the Senate, Senatus K, Senatus K. Populi Romanum, SPQR. And at first, this consisted of aristocrats, but then the common people objected and said, we're not going to go to war. We're not going to come and fight for this country if you're not going to give us some representation. And so they were first given tribunes who would have a veto power over what others in the Senate did. And eventually it appears that they became a lower house that was representing the, the plebeians or the working classes. Facebook recently announced an update to Instagram DMs by introducing a new Messenger experience in the app. More than a billion people already use Messenger. They are bringing some of the best Messenger features to Instagram. I'm Adam Mosseri. I'm the head of Instagram. I'm excited to talk to you today about some of the new messaging features we've got coming out. One of the features I'm most excited about is the fact that people are going to be able to message across apps. So you're going to be able to message your friends on Facebook from Instagram and vice versa. Now, this isn't going to change who you can message or who you can message you. You're still in complete control of both of those things. In fact, we've even built some new controls that are more granular that allow you to decide who exactly can message you. But you'll be able to manage your messages from one app should you so choose. And we think that's critically important, and we also think it's critically important that people have control over their experience. For more information, please visit the Facebook newsroom at about.fb.com news.
If your credit card bills have gotten out of hand and you care about your credit, call Consolidated Credit now. If the interest rates on your credit cards are so high, it'll take years to get out of debt. Call Consolidated Credit now. They've helped over 6 million people with credit card debt. Without destroying your credit, they can consolidate your debts into one lower payment, reduce your interest rates, and get you out of debt fast. The program works. Call Consolidated Credit now. Call 800-406-0046. That's 800-406-0046. Consolidated Credit Counseling Services, Inc., 5701 West Sunrise Boulevard, Fort Lauderdale, Florida, 33313. Licensed by the New York Department of Financial Services and by the Vermont Department of Financial Regulation, Maryland DM 1492, Oregon DM 80092. Licensed by the Virginia State Corporation, Commission License Number DC83. Service may adversely affect the individual's credit. Non-payment of debt may lead to additional finance charges or collections activity, including legal action, not a loan company. When thinking about life insurance, my accident reinforced you never know what tomorrow might bring. That's why I reached out to AccuQuote. AccuQuote helps people find a life insurance policy that meets their needs. Since 1986, they've helped millions of folks save up to 60% on their life insurance by comparing the rates and features of dozens of top-rated life insurance products. A healthy 50-year-old non-smoker can buy a half a million dollars of 10-year level term for less than 45 bucks a month. A 60-year-old under 120 bucks a month. Longer or permanent terms are available. Even if you already own life insurance, you really need to check out my friends at AccuQuote. Don't worry about health issues. Remember, they help me. As a pastor, I'm concerned about your soul and helping you to make sure your family is taken care of. Life insurance is more affordable now than ever, so don't make them wish you'd made that call. 877-437-4781. Call now, 877-437-4781. 877-437-4781. policy forms and availability vary by state. Once again, welcome back to Constitution Classroom with your host, Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. We're talking about the 17th Amendment today, and Colonel, you were giving us some remarkable background on uh, why the legislature in the United States government was structured the way that it was. And uh, I think we left off where you were telling us about uh, the ancient Roman government and, and the reasons that they had, uh, had structured themselves with, with the different houses of, of their lawmaking bodies. Exactly. We started with the Bible, where you see a upper house, the Senate, so to speak, or what they would call the Sanhedrin later in Moses' day. This is called the Council of Elders, the Council of Seventy. And then the Congregation of Israel, the tribal chiefs and so on from the various 12 tribes that would gather as the lower house. And in Rome, we start with the Senate and then and the, and the demand of the common people saying, we're not going to fight if you're not going to let us have some representation here. And so eventually it was established as a lower house in the Roman Senate as well. But then we move on to England. And in England, Anglo-Saxon England, starting with the Anglo-Saxons coming in the four or five hundreds and then on to the Norman conquest of 1066. But during that time, we have a legislative body, the Witanagamote, as it was called, and this legislative body was a one-house body. But after the Norman conquest and conflict develops between the Norman lord class and so on that seemed to control the House of Lords, England 
by about the 1300s, begins to have a two-house parliament. And the parliament, I would say, really is an outgrowth of the old Anglo-Saxon Vitana Gamo, but it starts with simply an upper house composed of peers of the realm, that is, composed of lords and so on. But gradually, a lower house develops, the House of Commons. And the House of Commons, among other things, has the authority to adopt taxes because it represents the people who are going to be paying the taxes. We look today as though here in America, our two-house legislature, the Senate, and the House of Representatives are modeled after England, and that's partially correct, but not entirely correct. Because when we look to the English House of Lords, it isn't exactly like the United States Senate. It is lords, nobility. It is composed of 26 lords spiritual, as they call it, that is, bishops of the Church of England, and then a larger number of lords temporal, those would be peers of the realm, as they call them, the nobility. And they don't simply pass legislation that's left to the House of Commons, and ever since about the 1300s, only the House of Commons had the authority to initiate taxes. But the House of Lords, members of the House, will serve as advisors to the Prime Minister or to the King or Queen. They don't exactly have the power to veto legislation passed by the House, but they can slow it down and suggest changes and so on. Members of the House of Lords, we think of them today, well, these are just a bunch of fat, lazy nobles who sit around there drinking wine in their plush chairs in the House of Lords, maybe once in a while vote on something. Actually, they gain their titles and their appointments to the House of Lords based on very high accomplishment. And many times, members of the House of Lords will be serving as heads of commissions, other things like this. So they're not a direct parallel to the United States Senate. Well, where did the idea of a two-house legislature come from? Partially from history. But as we look to the Constitutional Convention, well, some years ago, that it was back in the 1980s when we had our bicentennial of the Constitutional Convention, 200th anniversary, there was a Doonesbury cartoon. And I don't always care for Doonesbury, but sometimes he can be kind of funny. And this cartoon shows the delegates to the Constitutional Convention. They are back in their tavern, and they're, they're in for the night there. And they are having a knockdown, drag-out argument about what the legislature should consist of. And people from the larger states are shouting that the larger states should have more representation in the House than the smaller states should because they have more people. And the representatives of the smaller states are saying, well, no, they should be equal because Nations are considered equal in the international family of nations, and we are a confederation of independent states, and therefore they should be equal. And as they are shouting back and forth and arguing this room, well, in the next room, there is a traveling peddler with a migraine headache who can't sleep because of all the yelling going on in the other room, 
And finally, he just raps on the wall and says, have one house by representation and one house equal by states. Now shut up and let me get some sleep. <laughs> and the delegates say, idea. And that's where it came from. Well, most historians have rejected the Doonesbury thesis, and with good reason. But if we look to the proceedings of the Constitutional Convention, it actually comes from a man by the name of Roger Sherman. Now, Roger Sherman was a delegate from Connecticut. He was a very strong Christian man. He was an elder in the church that had been pastored by Jonathan Edwards, and later by Jonathan Edwards, Jr. He had been a shoemaker, and then he became a lawyer and a judge, and I guess everything went downhill further from there. He became a member of the Continental Congress and other things like this. And Roger Sherman, it was said of him that he was as honest as an angel and that he was no orator, but that he was one of the most persuasive people at the convention because he spoke with such common sense. He would first of all, state his proposition, and then he would line it up with arguments and evidence that persuaded you just as it persuaded him. But anyway, Roger Sherman suggested the idea that we should have two houses. One would be a Senate where there would be equal representation from each state. The other would be a house where representation would be based on the population of that state and that legislation would have to be adopted by both houses in order to be presented to the president to be considered passed and to be adopted as law. Now, Roger Sherman had suggested the same thing in the Continental Congress when they were considering the Articles of Confederation, and they didn't accept his idea at that time, but this time they did. And so, the great compromise, as it's sometimes called, the compromise by which we have a two-house legislature is sometimes simply called the Sherman Compromise. Now, there's another reason for it, too. And this reason is to slow down hasty legislation. There is a story that is told here of a conversation between George Washington and Thomas Jefferson. And I have to say that I have been told this ever since I was in grade school, but I'm told that today we cannot authenticate that this conversation took place. But what was said in this conversation, I think, accurately reflects one of the reasons for having a two-house legislature. And so we will explain that conversation right after the break. Okay, and again, you are listening to Constitution Classroom with your host, Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. We are uh, inviting you to, to check out the other archives of this program, which you can find at lovingliberty.net. Simply go to lovingliberty.net, click on podcast. You'll find a special category that is entirely uh, set up for the uh, Constitution Classroom. And we would invite you to walk through this, get the details, get the, the historical context behind this remarkable document and the individuals who wrote it. We'll be back after these messages.
we are back. This is Constitution Classroom. Let's uh, rejoin your host, Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law, as we continue our exploration of the 17th Amendment, which it turns out, Colonel, has been a pretty momentous amendment in terms of uh, impact on uh, the direction and size and scope of uh, American government. I would agree. The 17th Amendment certainly has changed the nature of American politics a great deal. But we were talking about this conversation between George Washington and Thomas Jefferson that we can't prove ever took place, but it's been a story for a long, long time. And, of course, Jefferson was not a delegate to the Constitutional Convention, but when he came back to serve in George Washington's administration, supposedly they were having tea together, and Jefferson asked Washington, why do you have two houses of the legislature? You know, I wasn't there. Why did the convention decide to set up these two houses? And Washington asked Jefferson, well, why do you pour your tea back and forth between your cup and your saucer? And Jefferson said, to cool it and to soothe it. And Washington said, even so, that is why we pour legislation back and forth between the House and the Senate, to cool it and to soothe it. If you ever go through the legislative process, even at the state level, where you've got to work to get a bill adopted, you get it drafted, you might work with a legislative reference service to draft it, you find a legislature, legislator who is willing to serve as the sponsor for the bill that you want, and then you start writing to legislators, explaining why the bill is needed, lobbying, and so on. Then comes a committee hearing, and in the committee hearing, some crotchety old senator in the back of the room raises a difficult point to technicality, and you're irritated. This is slowing things down, but also irritated because you know he's right. He did see a flaw in the bill that you hadn't seen. And then somebody else says, well, how much is this going to cost? And at that point, they decide they better refer it over to the finance committee. And finally, after all of these hearings and so on, they finally get it passed, except then it has to go to the next house and go through a similar process there in the other house, after which it goes to the governor or the president to be signed or vetoed and then reconsidered if it's vetoed. But it is a frustrating process to go through. However, I think we would all agree that it is wise in the long run because it is better to catch flaws in legislation before the bill is passed than afterward. Anyway, slowing down hasty legislation is another reason for having a two-house legislature. And I might add in regard to slowing it down that also it prevents hot-headed short-term majorities. Let's say that the nation of Canada does a terrible indignation or injustice to the United States. And so there's a movement in this country to declare war against Canada. But members of Congress are thinking, well, but a terrible thing they did, but they've been our best friend and ally for so long, we shouldn't go to war just over this. And so Congress refuses to declare war. And so we see a party develop, they call themselves the War Hawk Party, let's say, and this party says, vote for us. When you get us elected to Congress, we're going to declare war. And so in the next election, they 
sweep the House of Representatives and now have a majority. But that means they control the House, but only a third of the Senate, because the senators are elected for six-year terms, and so it would take a hot-headed popular majority at least four and possibly six years to get a majority in the Senate. And so, again, it slows down hasty or hot-headed legislation. So we looked at these two houses that Congress, that the Continental Congress decided to adopt, and we see that they're not just mirrors of one another. Rather, each of them has some powers that the other doesn't. Now, in both houses, the normal rule is going to be that whatever is going to be passed has to be passed by a majority, unless the Constitution says otherwise. And so in both houses, we're talking about a majority. But you look to the lower house. Now, one of the things the lower house does is they elect a Speaker of the House. And that Speaker of the House is third in line for the presidency. If the president can't continue to hold office, then the vice president becomes president. If the vice president can't hold office either, then Nancy Pelosi, at the present time, the Speaker of the House, becomes president. After that, it'll be the president pro tem of the Senate. And then from there, it'll be the members of the cabinet in order of seniority, meaning when that particular department was established. So next after that is the Secretary of State. I find that interesting. I'm getting off on a little bit of a rabbit trail because shortly after Thomas Jefferson, I'm sorry, after Bill Clinton, William Jefferson Clinton was elected president. But before he took office, he was at Monticello and he was talking to a group of high school students there. And that's Jefferson's home. And one of them asked him, if Thomas Jefferson were alive today, would you appoint him a, to a cabinet position? And if so, which one? And Clinton said, if Thomas Jefferson were alive today, I would appoint him Secretary of State, and then Al Gore and I would resign so Jefferson could become president. Problem with that is the commander-in-chief didn't know his chain of command. The, that would have been true before 1967, but since 67. The president pro tem of the Senate, or the, I'm sorry, the Speaker of the House, elected by the House, will be the next president. Also, if we're going to impeach a public official, whether it's a president or a cabinet official or a justice or federal judge, that begins with the House. All impeachments have to begin with the House. And if a majority of the House decides to impeach, that doesn't mean this person is removed from office. Then it goes to the Senate. And the Senate will vote on whether to remove. And there it has to be by a two-thirds vote of the Senate. But the process begins in the House. And Another thing about the House is all bills for raising revenue, in other words, all taxes, have to originate in the House, not the Senate. Now, there's a very clear reason for this, and that's that the House represents the people. The Senate, up until 1913, with the 17th Amendment that we're talking about, the Senate 
represents the states and was chosen by the state legislatures. And since the people, rather than the states, pay the taxes, the people, the body representing the people, has to originate all taxes. That becomes an issue to consider in the Obamacare cases. After all, if, as Justice Roberts said in the first Obamacare case, if, as he said, that Obamacare is justified under the taxing and spending power of Article 1 because it is a tax, well, if it's a tax, then it needed to originate in the House when, in fact, for all practical purposes, it originated in the Senate. Now, there are some things that are unique to the Senate, too. First of all, the Senate advises and consents to the confirmation of appointments to various cabinet positions, sub-cabinet positions, below sub-cabinet positions. The president can appoint these on his own, usually. That's based on legislation. And all federal judges have to be confirmed by the Senate. The House doesn't have anything to do with that. That is by the Senate. And so the president nominates them, the Senate considers them, and appoints them. Also, all treaties, whenever we enter a treaty with a foreign power, that treaty has to be confirmed, confirmed not by the House, but by the Senate. And unlike appointments, which are by a majority, treaties are by a two-thirds vote of the Senate to confirm a treaty. Likewise, the Senate decides whether to remove somebody that the House has impeached. And again, that is by a two-thirds vote of the Senate. Now, as the founders established this, these two branches then, they provided that the lower house, the House of Representatives, your congressman, would be elected by the, the people of the district. The Senate would be chosen by the legislature of the state. In other words, the House was the people's check on government. The Senate was the state's check on government. That check has been removed, as we're going to see after the break. Okay. And we will pick up our conversation with Colonel Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law, just the other side of these commercial messages. have health goals. But let's face it, you are living in some fantasy world if you think you are suddenly about to start eating better. In fact, have you thought of this? How many different servings of fruit have you eaten today? How many servings of vegetables? And sorry, Dad, French fries and ketchup don't count. The experts recommend eating over 10 servings of fruits and vegetables each day. That's where Balance of Nature comes in. With three fruit and three veggie capsules, Balance of Nature gives you all your daily recommended servings and contains 31 different fruits and vegetables. Right now, Balance of Nature is offering free shipping and 35% off any new preferred order of fruits and veggies. Change your life now by calling 800-2468-751. That's 800-2468-751 or by going to balanceofnature.com and make sure to receive this special radio offer by using discount code USA. Do you think some of the top investors in the world are buying gold? 
Recently, a handful of billionaires have been accumulating gold over other forms of investments. When the world's financial moguls like Sam Zell begin choosing metals, perhaps it's time you listen and follow suit with your own personal investments. Gold is formally recognized as a hedge against currency depreciation and inflation. Take David Einhorn as one example. Einhorn founded Greenlight Capital in 1996 and surged that fund from $900,000 to as high as $11 billion. Einhorn believes that the central bank's recent stimulus efforts will have an effect on pushing up the value of gold. He keeps 10% of his firm's value stored in gold bullion. If you're interested in knowing more about gold, platinum, and palladium, call Noble Gold for a no-pressure consultation. They have the most experienced representatives and an exclusive pipeline to metal sources. Visit them at noblegoldinvestments.com. That's noblegoldinvestments.com. When thinking about life insurance, my accident reinforced you never know what tomorrow might bring. That's why I reached out to AccuQuote. AccuQuote helps people find a life insurance policy that meets their needs. Since 1986, they've helped millions of folks save up to 60% on their life insurance by comparing the rates and features of dozens of top-rated life insurance products. A healthy 50-year-old non-smoker can buy a half a million dollars of 10-year level term for less than 45 bucks a month. A 60-year-old under 120 bucks a month. Longer or permanent terms are available. Even if you already own life insurance, you really need to check out my friends at AccuQuote. Don't worry about health issues. Remember, they help me. As a pastor, I'm concerned about your soul and helping you to make sure your family is taken care of. Life insurance is more affordable now than ever, so don't make them wish you'd made that call. 877-437-4781. Call now, 877-437-4781. 877-437-4781. Rates, policy forms, and availability vary by state. We are back. This is Constitution Classroom. Your host is Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. We are talking about one of the important amendments that has really affected us in terms of how the government does business, that being the 17th Amendment. And Colonel, I think we're just about to the point where we can talk about how this amendment came into being. We are ready. And the 17th Amendment, which is ratified in 1913, has two sections. First section simply says the Senate of the United States shall be composed of two senators from each state elected to a six-year term by the people thereof, and each senator shall have one vote. Now, as we said prior to that time, the Senate was chosen by the state legislature. And so the Senate was the people who were the state's check on government. The House, elected by the people, was the people's check on government seemed like a very good system in many ways, but starting even in the 1820s, there were demands that we elect the United States senators. In fact, even at the Constitutional Convention, there were a few who made that proposal. James Wilson of Pennsylvania thought that they should be elected popularly, but that was defeated by the majority who wanted the Senate to reflect the states. And there was a reason for it. And the reason is this way, the states have a check on what the federal government does. If both houses have to both pass a bill in order for it to go to the president and be signed into law, it's pretty hard for a bill to get passed through the Senate if the states don't like, because the Senate itself is composed of people who have been chosen by the state legislatures. But if we get past the war between the states, 
and go into the Reconstruction time, the idea of the sovereignty of individual states is fading, and we are now thinking of ourselves more as one nation, less as a confederation of states. And so the desire to popularly elect the Senate becomes stronger. And regularly, though, proposals to amend the Constitution to allow this are defeated. Sometimes they are passed by the House, but understandably defeated by the Senate. What a number of states were doing then, though, is they would hold a Senate unofficial primary. And whoever won that unofficial primary in the state, then the legislators would have been pledged. They pledged the people, okay, if you elect me to the legislature, I promise you that when I'm in the legislature, I will vote to send to the Senate the person that you, the people, have approved in the primary. And so in about 29 states by this time, the the states were having these unofficial primaries to give the popular choice, and then the state legislature would just simply rubber stamp what the people had already said they wanted to be their senator. Well, there was one incident in particular that probably had more to do with the 17th Amendment getting passed than any other, and that was in 1911 when an Illinois senator. Well, the news came out that basically he had gotten his appointment to the Senate by bribing just about everybody in the state legislature to vote for him. Well, there was such national indignation about this that that pretty well was the death knell of the previous system, and that was pretty well what gave the shot in the arm to the 17th Amendment and got it approved and got it ratified by the state. So it became part of the Constitution on April 8th of 1913, and most people see that as a move forward for democracy. But the negative part of it is that this important check that the states had had on the federal government has now been eliminated, and the differences between the House and the Senate are therefore not nearly as great as they once were. The Senate is much less an aristocratic body than it used to be. And the senators, well, the only difference is that there are fewer of them than there are of House members, and they are elected for six-year terms rather than two-year terms. Now, there's one more part of the 17th Amendment as well, and that is second clause of it, which says, when a Senate seat becomes vacant for any reason, the governor of that state shall issue writs of election to fill such vacancies. However, the legislature of any state may empower the governor to make a temporary appointment until the people fill the vacancy by an election, as the legislature shall direct. Question, what happens if a senator dies, or for some other reason that senator cannot continue to serve, and our state has a vacancy in the Senate, meaning we don't have as much representation as we are really entitled to under the Constitution? What do we do? Well, to clarify what happens then, the 17th Amendment is adopted. This second portion of the 17th Amendment says that whenever a senator dies or otherwise leaves office, the governor shall issue a writ of election. That is, the governor shall issue an executive order saying an election for to fill this vacancy 
is going to be held on such and such a date. In other words, not appoint one. We're going to have one chosen by the people. However, the clause goes on to say that, however, the legislature may empower the government to make a temporary appointment until the people fill the vacancy by an election as the legislature shall direct. So if the legislature wants to authorize the governor to do this, the governor, they can authorize the governor to immediately appoint a replacement and then also after that set a date for election, which maybe that will wait until the next regular election or maybe they'll decide to set a special election for March 25th or something like that. But anyway, that just simply systematizes more what's going to happen when the Senate seat becomes vacant. Previously, the legislature would have chosen the replacement, just like they did the original. But now that we have popular election, we need to know what to do for vacancies, and that's the way they decided to resolve it. Well, Brian, you and I have talked about this a little bit, too, and my impression is that you have some reservations about the 17th Amendment. May I ask what you think? I think it was a, a very deadly blow to the uh, the kind of representation the states needed at the federal level. And and I think you've explained this pretty well. Um, t- to my understanding, when the, when the senators were no longer um, being appointed or otherwise elected by the states that they represented, but became uh, subject to, you know, the popular vote, that's when their allegiance, in my opinion, shifted from the uh, from the the states that they were supposed to represent to the federal government instead. And I, I think we see that uh, play out over and over. Now, when the senators return home, they're telling us, "Oh, here's what I, here's what the federal government will do for you," or "Here's the money I can bring to you," rather than "Here's how I'm protecting you from federal overreach," or "Here's how I'm making sure that the federal government is following the the restrictions on its power as outlined in the Constitution." Well, I agree with you entirely. We had a conservative Democrat senator from Georgia a few years ago, Zell Miller, who thought the 17th Amendment was a mistake and thought it ought to be repealed. He didn't get a whole lot of support for this, but I was in favor of it. I don't think it's pretty hard. It's going to be pretty hard to do this. People don't like to give up their right to vote and persuading people to that we should go back to the old system is going to be pretty hard to do because people just don't have that kind of understanding of the constitutional checks and balances anymore. But it certainly is true that this important check is gone. Another thing probably that has diminished senators and representatives' allegiance to their districts and their states probably is national media, where instead of having to report back to their district or to their state, rather they just get on national television and speak to the nation as a whole. Say, there's probably one thing I ought to mention here, too, just so there's no misunderstanding on this. And I remember when I was a kid growing up in first South Dakota and then Iowa, we had two senators from Iowa, and I had the idea that one of them represented western Iowa and the other represented eastern Iowa, that the state was divided into Senate districts. In other words, that is not correct and never has been. The senator represents the entire state. Well, that's good to know. Because I've been tempted to always divide them up as this senator, the one I like, represents the good people of the state, and the other one I'm not so fond of represents the not-so-good people. But apparently that doesn't well, hold I water either. I understand that, but they're, they're both supposed to represent the whole state. But 
I understand that. Understood. Colonel, thank you so much for walking us through the, the 17th Amendment. Is there still more that we'll be visiting in, in upcoming episodes of Constitution Classroom? I think we're finished with the 17th Amendment, but then we've got 10 more amendments to consider, and then we're going to go back to Articles 1 through 7. Okay. So there's plenty more in this Constitution. Very good. Well, we have a lot of a uh, lot of things to learn. Join us again on the Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. 